محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب الديني بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, so this is our third lecture on the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And uh, last lesson, uh, I had reached the point where the Prophet and the Quraysh had, had gone had a back and forth for a number of different emissaries. I think there's an echo in the mic. Where's our brother Adam? Adam? Yeah, we have an echo in the mic if you can fix it. Uh, and so we had mentioned the fact that there have been at least three or four back and forths and now it was the Prophet's turn to send somebody of a senior rank so he offered, he chose Umar bin Khattab and uh, most likely the reason that he chose Umar was because of the physical strength of Umar an intimidating personality, a very strong person and uh, somebody that physically uh, even had the courage to walk into Mecca so Umar bin Khattab he said Ya Rasulullah I fear that the Quraysh might not accept me as my animosity, my enmity is well known and I don't have anybody from the tribe of Banu Adi ibn Ka'b which is his own tribe to protect me. And he said very clearly, if you wish I will go. He's not backing out, he's not a coward. Nobody can accuse Umar of cowardice. He said if you wish I will go. But if you wish then send somebody who's more noble than I and that is Uthman ibn Affan. Now, this really shows us the true fiqh of Umar. The last person anybody can accuse of cowardice is Umar. Well known. From the day before Islam up until his death, there is nobody more fearless than Umar. And had it been an issue of ego, he would have been at the forefront. Let me go make history. So what, whatever happens. But he is worried that his animosity with the Quraysh will cause the Quraysh not to have a solid treaty with them. He's sacrificing his ego for the sake of the Muslims. He doesn't want to be in the limelight. Nobody can accuse Umar of backing down uh, because of you know, fear or whatnot. So he says, my animosity with the Quraysh, meaning they know how angry I am, they know what I've done, they know all of my uh, incidents at Badr and Uhud and who I've killed and whatnot. So they might even kill me. And of course Umar doesn't worry about his life. They might even kill me. And so the purpose of sending me, which is to have a treaty, which is to enter Mecca, will be pointless. So send somebody whom they genuinely look up to without that animosity. And that is Uthman ibn Affan, the noble, the shy. And then of course the main point about Uthman ibn Affan who is Uthman ibn Affan? Uthman ibn Affan is the great-grandson of Umayyah. And Umayyah and the Hashim were brothers. And so the Banu Umayyah and the Banu Hashim, they are now two competitors amongst the Quraysh. And Uthman was the closest of the Khulafa al-Rashidun after Ali. Obviously Ali is Banu Hashim. Ali is the only Khalifa who is Banu Hashim. From the other three, Uthman was the closest in Nasab and lineage. Abu Bakr and Umar were six and eight generations respectively. Six and eight generations. And Uthman was four generations. And Ali was of course grandfather. The grandfather of Ali and the grandfather of Prophet But Ali is Banu Hashim. Uthman is Banu Umayyah. And Banu Umayyah and the Banu Hashim are relatively close. Not only that, 
The Banu Umayyah has amongst them some very powerful people still alive. Unlike Banu Adi, who, which is Umar's tribe, he is saying nobody is left. They have died in, one of them died in Badr, uh, another in Uhud, so there's nobody left. Nobody's going to help me anyway, so why don't you send Uthman? Not only is he the, the, the baggage I have, he doesn't have it. Also, he has his family to protect him in case they attack. So, Umar radiallahu anhu sacrificed his own spotlight, if you like, for the sake of the Muslim community. And this is not astaghfirullah as some other groups interpret that Umar cowered out. Honestly, really, Umar ibn Khattab is going to chicken out? Yani, this is ridiculous to, to claim that Umar, you know, uh, had, had a, spa, a spat of fear here. Wallahi, the entire life of Umar demonstrates he was a, uh, the bravest and the perhaps sometimes even foolhardy brave, meaning above and beyond what bravery is required. He sacrificed his position for the Muslim community. Also, perhaps the treatment of Khirash. Remember the process of Khirash from Khuza'a? We talked about that last week and they hamstrung the, the camel and they gathered around him. Perhaps Umar said, look, if that's what's going to happen then let's find somebody who might actually get the job done. So he thought of Uthman ibn Affan and the Prophet then sent Uthman ibn Affan. And uh, as he was entering Mecca, there was, of course, emissaries or, or, or um, people basically uh, called them uh, envoys or not spies, but I mean protectors, people blocking all of the roads to Mecca. So uh, when he comes in, he went through a road that is called Baldah. Baldah was the, one of the roads into Mecca. And the group that was there monitoring that road, they stopped Uthman and they, they mocked him. They told him to get back. They said, we're not going to negotiate with you. You have no hope of getting into Mecca uh, and there is no room for negotiation. So he was about to return. Turn. But in that group, there was his own cousin, and that is Aban ibn Sa'id ibn al-As. And Uthman ibn Affan, uh, Affan and Sa'id were brothers. Uthman ibn Affan ibn al-As ibn Umayyah. Uthman ibn al-Affan ibn al-As ibn Umayyah. And this is Aban ibn Sa'id ibn al-As ibn Umayyah. So it's literally his first cousin. And Aban was a much older than him, and he was a well-respected figure. When Aban saw how the people were treating his own cousin, Perhaps his own heart softened, or perhaps he respected Uthman from before anyway. So he got out of his own horse, and he took his horse to Uthman, and he said, You ride, and I will protect you in Mecca. You will meet whomever you want to meet, and I will be your protector. And remember, this was the day, uh, the, these were the ways that the Jahili Arabs gave visas. Remember, this was their entrance visa. How was their entrance visa? You need a, a, a person to protect you. You need somebody who will say, you're under my aman. I give you my aman, and then you can enter the city. So his cousin said, you know what? I will sponsor you. I'll give you the visa. You're under my protectorship. And to demonstrate this, he put Uthman on his own uh, horse and on his own saddle. And this shows us the honor that Uthman is getting. And he led him into uh, Mecca and he personally took him to meet with all of the other leaders of the Quraysh. And uh, Uthman ibn Affan, he met with Abu Sufyan. Now Abu Sufyan is his direct relative. Abu Sufyan is his father's cousin. Abu Sufyan is from the tribe of Umayyah. Remember the Umayyah dynasty, who founded it? Who is the founder? His son who is? Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. Muawiyah is the first Umayyad Caliph, right? Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan. So Abu Sufyan and Affan are first cousins. Some basic lineage you should know. And that's why, by the way, in the incident, in the fitna, in the civil war, when Ali was killed, Muawiyah 
sorry, when Uthman was killed. When Uthman was killed, Muawiyah said, you have to avenge the death of Uthman. And it's as if Muawiyah felt this is Banu Abd shams being harmed and you're Banu Hashim. So there was a little bit of attention and Muawiyah felt responsible that I need to defend my relative Uthman, right? So to reiterate, Abu Sufyan and Uthman, they are uncle-nephew but cousin, not direct uncle-nephew i.e. Affan and Abu Sufyan are cousins, first cousins, right? And so Muawiyah and Uthman are second cousins, clear? Muawiyah and Uthman are second cousins. So he meets his uncle Abu Sufyan, uh, he meets the other leaders uh, of the Quraysh, and none of them uh, basically allow the Muslims to come this year. And they all, they've already agreed that they're not going to enter this year, and they say the same phrase, each one of them say, says the same phrase, let not the Arabs say that, they had the upper hand over us. Let not the Arabs say that we were forced to let them in. Also, uh, the Prophet ﷺ told Uthman that if he is able to get to Mecca, then he should meet all of the Muslim converts who were in dire situations, who were trapped, and tell them that Allah is aware of their situation and Allah will make a way out for them soon. So Uthman met some of the Muslim converts who were in chains, who were being persecuted, and this shows us, and of course the Treaty of Hudaybiyah has a very famous convert who was in chains, we'll mention him today, this shows us that there were a group of Muslims who had not yet been able to migrate to Medina, not because they didn't want to, but because they were being tortured and persecuted, and they didn't have the means to migrate to Medina, so Uthman was sent specifically as well, that if you manage to get in, make sure you tell them, Allah Azza wa Jal will give them a way out soon. So, uh, in the whole negotiations, it took much longer than was to be expected. For whatever reasons, most likely uh, to arrange with Abu Sufyan, with, uh, uh, with Safwan, with uh, Safwan ibn Umayyah, with all of the major leaders, it's not going to be something easy. Maybe each one of them gave half hour, 45 minutes, whatever time slot. So we can imagine, we don't know exact timings. I wish we had more details. As you know, one of the big problems of the seerah, simple narrations. How long did it take? We have no idea. But realistically, it probably took up the better part of a whole day. Maybe Uthman went in the morning and up until Asr time, no news is coming. And that's way beyond what anybody would have expected for a quick meeting and a return. You would have expected it takes, you know, one hour, one and a half hour, for it to take nine, ten hours, for whatever reason. Uh, this is something that, and no news, like Uthman goes in and it's a black box. Nobody knows what's happening. So it is understandable how and why some of the people panicked and small rumors began getting bigger and bigger, just like is the case in every society, in every situation. If one buddy says something, you know, then it begins rolling and gathering moss or gathering steam, whatever you want to say, until it becomes almost like a solid fact. And again, the details, we have no idea, but it is pretty self-evident. Somebody would have said, what if he's been killed? What if they killed him? And then that one thing, somebody else took it, and it goes, most likely they killed him. Then as it gets later, for sure they must have killed him, right? That small thing, bigger and bigger, until finally there was this premonition. There was this dread amongst the Muslims. After all, it's been so many hours, he has not come back. Then what has happened? So therefore, the, the news kind of sort of was accepted as a fact, because Uthman 
kept on being delayed because he didn't come back until finally there was this notion amongst all of the Muslims that he must have been killed. Surely if, if he were alive he would have come back by now. And they're not going to keep him prisoner because he's too noble to keep as a prisoner. Are they going to kill him or are you going to let him go back? So when the rumors spread to the Prophet wasallam, and it appeared that the Muslims were kind of sort of made up their minds, this must be the case, he then said, we will not leave until we exact revenge upon them. We're not going to let this go. This is simply too much. We send an emissary, one of their own, and this is what they do. So he says, we are not going to leave until we uh, exact revenge and we fight them. Now, look at the circumstance. They're 1400 and the Quraysh are at least triple this amount. They are tired having traveled from Medina and the Quraysh are full rested. They are hungry, water is low. Additionally, their animals are tired. They don't have riding horses. The Quraysh are fresh in their houses. Armor, weapons, unlimited supply, food, unlimited supply. The Muslims, everything is limited supply. And most importantly, they didn't come prepared for battle. Even if we say, and this does seem to be the case, that the Prophet had some armor and some weapons, it wasn't an actual war preparation. It wasn't as if they were going to Uhud or to, or to uh, the Khandaq where they're actually dressing up, they're making sure they have the arms. No, this was an Umrah trip and maybe they might have had some weapons on some caravan, but they definitely did not have weapons that were suitable for an all-out war. And so when the Prophet is calling them for a battle, this really is almost certain death. Because you're outnumbered, you're outmaneuvered, you're outflanked, everything. And, of course, this is why this oath is so important in our religion, that Allah and His Messenger have both praised this oath immensely. And a crier was sent out to the, the, all of the Muslims, saying that Jibreel has come down, the Ruhul Qudus has come down to the Prophet and he is calling you to give the allegiance to him. So Jibreel himself was sent down. Now, of course, Allah knows that Uthman is well alive. But this was a test for the believers to see if they would give their oath to the Prophet or not. So the crier went out that Jibreel has come down, Ruhul Qudus is here, and the Prophet is calling all of you for an oath at a pledge to fight the Quraysh and not turn back. The pledge was that they do not turn back, which means they die in battle. They don't flee from the battlefield. They will, uh, if they have to, they will die, but they're not going to turn around and run away. And this was the oath of allegiance, which eventually became called the Bay'atul Ridwan, or the oath of pleasure. Ridwan is pleasure. And why is it called the oath of Ridwan? Because Allah revealed in Surah Al-Fatih, verse 18, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ Allah is well pleased with the believers. When they give you their oath under the tree. So It is the oath of Ridwan. And the Prophet was sitting under a, a, a tree. And Allah mentions this tree in the Quran. Uh, under the tree. So the, the reference to the tree is even in the Quran. And the Prophet took the oath of allegiance from all of the people. Except for it is said one hypocrite. Who when the crier came. He jumped behind his camel. And basically crouched under the shade of his camel. So nobody would see him. But Allah exposed him in the Quran. And it is well known even know his name. Who this person was. So this was the hypocrite who refused. He was scared to fight now. And he uh, and some say this is the same person that uh, we are already mentioned 
that Allah has forgiven everyone except for the owner of the red camel. Some say this was the same person, that this was that uh, hypocrite. And when all of the Sahaba had finished the bay'ah, the oath, the Prophet ﷺ, then in front of all of the Sahaba, he took his left hand and he said, this is for Uthman. And he put it in his right hand and he took the oath on behalf of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So, this is called the Bay'atul Ridwan, and obviously it shows us here the bravery of the Sahaba, unarmed, defenseless, traveling, uh, not having all of the weapons, fighting the people that are rested, healthy, firm, lots of supplies, and they're willing to fight until death, until uh, uh, basically the end is, is met. And that is why the people who swore allegiance to the Prophet on Bay'atul Ridwan are given a status that is second only to Badr. Only to Badr, as a whole group. Of course, above Badr, there are individuals. And those individuals are the ten. Okay. Above Badr, there's simple individuals. And those are the ten promised Jannah. But generically, as a group, the highest group that has been praised by the Prophet are the Badriyun, the Badriyun, the people of Badr. And then the second highest group are Bay'atul Ridwan. And there are so many ayat and a hadith, all of Surah Fatah, and inshallah, if not next week, the week after that, we'll summarize some ayat of Surah Al-Fatah as a commentary. As we know, it's my methodology to try to bring in the Quran as much as possible. Uh, we did this for Badr and Uhud and Ahzab. We'll also do this, inshallah, for Hudaybiyah. The Surah Al-Fatah was all revealed for Hudaybiyah. And many references are for uh, Hudaybiyah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran, radiyallahu anil mu'mineen. Allah is pleased with them. And Allah says, uh, Allah knows what was in their hearts. And this is the highest testification that none of them were cowards. None of them were hiding. Allah knew their hearts were ready to do everything. Right? So Allah says, فَأَنزَلَ السَّكِينَةَ عَلَيْهِمْ Allah has revealed the sakina. And Allah Azza wa Jal says that, يَدُ اللَّهِ فَوْقَ أَيْدِيهِمْ Allah's hand is above their hand. So you see the process in hand is like this, and the Sahaba, what they do is they put it on top, and they hold the hand of the process with both of their hands, and they swear a special oath, Ya Rasulullah, we will, we will fight behind you, and we will not abandon, we will not flee. So Allah is saying that it wasn't just their hand was in your hand, but rather Allah's hand was above their hands. Yadullahi fawqa aydihim. And we affirm that Allah's yad was above their yad in a manner that befits Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what a praise for these sahaba. What a praise. Imagine Allah is saying, they didn't just give you the oath. They were giving the oath directly to me. Yadullahi fawqa aydihim. Yadullahi fawqa aydihim. What a blessing those Sahaba had. What a great honor that they had. That they took the oath of allegiance directly in the hands of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Allah is saying, it's not just your hand. My yad was above their uh, yad. And the Prophet sallallahu said uh, to them at that time, he said, Antum khayra ahlil ardi. You are the best people on earth right now. You are the best people on earth. None of the people of earth are better than you. And in one hadith he said after he went back to Medina, he said that no one who has given the bay'atul ridwan shall ever enter the fire of hell. None of those people shall ever touch the fire of hell. And this hadith is in Sahih Muslim. None of those people shall ever touch the fire of hell. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore gave them a good, a glad tidings. And he said that... Uh, uh, that Allah Azza wa Jalla will give you ghanima, 
that وَبُشْرَى تُحِبُّونَ Allah will give you a good bushra and a ghanima وَفَتْحٌ كَبِيرٌ and a major victory and we will discuss what is this ghanima and what is this major victory this is the battle of Khaybar and again there's a lot of simple misunderstanding when people read Surah Al-Fatah they think this is Fathi Makkah and this is the biggest misunderstanding no Fathi Makkah has nothing to do with Surah Al-Fatah at this stage Surah Al-Fatah came down before the Fathi Makkah and the Fatah of Hudaybiyyah was a different Fatah that was a prelude to the Fatih Makkah. So Surah Al-Fatah is related to Hudaybiyyah and Allah says in Surah Al-Fatah that I'm going to give you Ghanima. I'm going to give you a victory and a Ghanima. Ghanima means lots of war booty. And very soon, in fact the very next Sira lessons, then three, four lessons from now, we're going to be talking about the biggest monetary victory for the Muslims ever since the beginning of Islam, and that is the conquest of Khaybar. The conquest of Khaybar changed the financial situation for the entire Ummah. And Allah says, that's the Ghanima and the Fatih that's going to happen. And this shows us a direct correlation, we've said this from the beginning. When you stand up for Allah and you put your trust in Allah, Allah gives you back much more. In this dunya before the next. Even in this dunya before the next. We've seen this throughout the seerah. The battle of Badr. When they went out to the battle of Badr, Allah says, I'll give you one of the two good things. Allah ended up giving both of them. Right? I'll give you both the victory and the caravan. Next year they got the whole caravan. Right? We talked about this when we talked about it. The same over here. That when those people showed their bravery, these sahaba, the Allah Azza wa Jal, after they showed it, when they showed it, they don't know what's going to happen. They think they're facing death. And Allah Azza wa Jal on the way back said, Allah is well pleased with you. لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah is well pleased with you. فَعَلِمَ مَا فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ فَأَثَابَهُمْ فَتْحًا قَرِيبًا وَمَغَانِمَ كَثِيرَةً يَأْخُذُونَهَا And a lot of maghanima you will take. A lot of booty. And this was the largest ghanima that they ever took not in the history of Islam because there was going to be one bigger thing and that is after, that is Hunayn. That's one bigger Ghanima after that, after the conquest of Mecca. But in the history of, 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 of the Seerah, the, the conquest of Khaybar is definitely of the top two uh, Ghanimas that they, uh, that they got. Now, also over here we see in this incident the great blessings of Uthman. That subhanAllah, what an honor. The Sahaba had a great honor. Wallahi, they had an honor that should make us cry out of positive jealousy. We're allowed to have positive jealousy. That they got to have the yad of the process in their hands and they're giving bay'ah. But Uthman had an even higher honor. Because the Prophet represented Uthman with his own body and his own hand. How much more noble do you want? He said, this is the hand of Uthman. Meaning, if Uthman had been here, this is what he would have done. But he, since he's not here, let me stand in his place. Think about that. Let me stand in his place. Let me pretend to be Uthman. And I will give the oath on behalf of Uthman. Here you have Rasulullah testifying for Uthman. How can anybody utter one word against this man? Wallahi, anybody, anybody who says anything about Uthman, in his heart there is nifaq. Wallahi alladhi la ilaha illahu. Anybody who says anything about Uthman, he cannot have genuine love of Allah in his messenger. It's not possible. When the Prophet is saying, this is the hand of Uthman, then you are insulting the hand of the Prophet when you criticize Uthman. Because he took his place and he said, this is for Uthman's. And he gave the oath of allegiance to himself. Imagine. 
on behalf of Uthman radiallahu ta'ala and subhanallah the bitterness about Uthman is nothing new this goes back to the very earliest the Kharijites the first group to criticize Uthman and eventually kill him were who? the Kharijites right? and we have in Sahih Bukhari a beautiful narration that illustrates this is nothing new in Sahih Bukhari we have one of the Kharijites came from Masr and uh, the Kharijites uh, some of them were from Iraq some of them were from Masr and uh, he went to do Hajj and he saw a large gathering around an old man. So he said, who is this man? So they told him, this is Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah ibn Umar. So he made his way through the crowd and he said, oh ibn Umar, I have some questions to ask you. And it was their methodology to be rude, interrupt every gathering, the harshness that we still find presence in some groups, and the type of overzealousness and fanaticism that we find. This all goes back to the khawarij. Oh ibn Umar, I have some questions to ask you. Ibn Umar says, go ahead, ask. I ask you by Allah, did Uthman turn his back and run away at Uhud? Uthman is the Khalifa, right? And he's trying to find fault with Uthman. Eventually, him and his group are going to kill Uthman. Right now, he's alive. Did Uthman turn his back and run away from Uhud? In the battle of Uhud, Ibn Umar says, you ask me by Allah, I answer you, yes, he did. So the man said, was Uthman absent at Badr? He said, are you asking by Allah? I will answer yes, he was absent at Badr. The man said, and was he missing at Ridwan? Bay'at al-Ridwan. So Ibn Umar said, you ask me by Allah, I tell you, he was missing at Ridwan. So the man said, Allahu Akbar. Happy, I got all that I wanted. Turned around and walked away. Ibn Umar said, come back here. Come back here. As for your first question, yes, Uthman fled Uhud. But Allah testified in Surah Al Imran that Allah has forgiven them. Allah has forgiven them. And so I testify that He is forgiven. As for your second question, that He, he was missing or he, he didn't participate at Badr, then He was married to Ruqayya binti Muhammad and the Prophet commanded him to stay in Medina. And he got a share of the booty. He is considered a Badri, Hukman. Uthman has the rare honor of being considered a Badri even though he wasn't at Badr because he was obeying the process and by remaining behind. And you know Ruqayya died uh, when he came back, right? So Ruqayya was, this was the, 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 the death of Ruqayya. She, her, she was deathly ill. She was on her deathbed. I mean, of course, in this situation, uh, you know, he was told to remain. And we, we, we covered this when we covered it. And as for your third question, what a fool. Wallahi, what a fool. Bay'at al-Ridwan, Uthman wasn't there. Ibn Umar said, Ridwan only occurred because of Uthman. The whole bay'ah was because of Uthman. And the Prophet ﷺ used his own hand to take the oath on behalf of Uthman. So go back now with all of this to your people. Tell them this what I'm telling you. right? And this shows us the blessings of Uthman ibn Affan and the fact that the criticisms about him. Uh, and I've given a, a long talk about Uthman, which unfortunately I think was not recorded. But it was a, a detailed talk about his assassination and what the c complaints were and the blessings of Uthman. Uh, Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala an. And uh, there are so many ahadith. Yani we have enough that the Prophet said, should I not be ashamed and shy of somebody? Even the angels are shy of him. This hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim. That even the angels are 
are shy of Uthman. He's such a humble and a, a meek and a, 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 a noble person. I'm awkward around him. Even the angels are awkward around him. Can you imagine the angels feel they have to be a little bit extra around Uthman? Can you imagine? Who is this man? Right? And so, uh, anybody who criticizes Uthman, wallahi, the person really is a, uh, a jahil and more than just a, a jahil. Uh, so, also we have over here that 1400 Sahaba, they gave the Bay'at al-Ridwan. They participated in Bay'at al-Ridwan. And the bulk of the famous Sahaba were here. Abu Bakr and Umar and Ali and all of the famous Sahaba, Abdurrahman ibn Awf and all of them. And this is one of the most explicit, and there are like a million evidences that we believe as Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah that the Sahaba are worthy of our ultimate respect, right? This is the fundamental cornerstone of Sunni Islam. What does Ahl Sunnah wa Jama'ah mean? The group who follow the Sunnah and the Jama'ah. The Jama'ah are who? Number one, they are the Sahaba. And this is what separated us from day one from the other groups. The Kharijites, the Mu'tazilites, and the other group, they all said we're not going to respect uh, the Sahaba. And this is what separated us from all of the other groups in the beginning of Islam. And this incident, Bay'at al-Ridwan, is but one of like a million evidences. Literally the Quran and Sunnah, common sense, reason, logic, everything tells you that the Sahaba have the highest maqam. And if you're going to ridicule the Sahaba, you have no religion left. Because who gave you the Qur'an and who gave you the Sunnah other than the Sahaba? You have no knowledge of the Qur'an and of Islam except through the Sahaba, right? And as one of the, uh, one of the, the famous Imams of the past said, if you were to ask the Jews who are the most righteous people, they will say, the 70 who accompanied Moses on Turi Sayna. And if you were to ask the Christians who are the most righteous people, they will say, the 12 disciples who accompanied Jesus Christ. If you were to ask that other group, who are the worst and the most vilest and the scum of all of mankind, that other group will say, those who accompanied the Prophet Muhammad Wallahi, well, it doesn't even make logical sense, right? Think about it. By common sense, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will choose the best people to be around the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And anybody who disagrees, wallahi, they have to deal with Allah azza wa on the Day of Judgment. In this world, we can only make dua for them and, uh, you know, have uh, 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 logical debates. Other than that, it is up to Allah azza wa to deal with them. Uh, the point being that, Bay'at al-Ridwan and the ayat and the ahadith of Bay'at al-Ridwan, even if you reject hadith, what are you going to do with Surah Al-Fatih? لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايُعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ How can you deny the Qur'an? It's right there in the Qur'an. When all of the Sahaba gave bay'ah under the tree, and Allah says, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ And that is why we as Sunni Muslims, we say, رَضِيَ اللَّهُ Whenever we mention a Sahabi, what do we say? Abu Bakr رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْ Umar رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْ Where do we get it from? There's at least a dozen times, radiyallah, 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 and here we have in Surah Al-Fatih. And Abu Bakr was there, Umar was there, Uthman, who, he wasn't there, but the Prophet's hand was there, Ali was there, Abdurrahman ibn Awf was there, all of the major Sahaba were there. How can anybody again criticize the uh, Sahaba? Another interesting point before we move on again, all of this is just related to Bay'at al-Ridwan, is uh, the issue of the tree itself, some interesting things about the tree itself. As for which tree it was, I mean it was a, a, a land which had lots of little shrubs and trees over there. It is narrated that one or two of the Sahaba, they might have remembered the tree. It is said that Jabir ibn Abdullah and Jabir, uh, we all know the story of Jabir and, and the story of Jabir and the camel. We did the whole halaqah on that. Jabir ibn Abdullah who was still a young man at the time. 
He's probably around 19 uh, now or 20. So Jabir lives a very long life. And he's over 80 years old when he dies, 78, sorry, something when he dies. And eventually he becomes blind. So one of those years when he's blind, so very late on, he's narrating these incidents. And then he says, as he's blind, he says, if only I could see, and if I had eyes, I would show you exactly that tree that we sat under. Now that tree is significant because Allah mentions it. And the Prophet sat there for so long, you know, getting the bay'ah. So clearly there's a lot of history attached to that tree. At the same time, it does look like the majority of Sahaba really could not identify the tree for one simple reason, and that is that there were so many other trees. And if you come the next year, I mean, wallah, you guys try this as well, that, you know, go to a wood or a plain, if you come back in a year, everything looks pretty much exactly the same, or one tree cannot be told apart. And it is authentically narrated in Sahih Bukhari that one of the companions said, when we got there, uh, you know, the next year later on, the next year we tried to find that tree, but no two of us could agree which tree it was. And this is human nature, right? One person can say, no, this was it. No, 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 this one looks more like, no, this, it's human nature. You have 50 trees in the vicinity and each one will have a slightly different memory. And it is authentically narrated that, that within uh, a decade or so, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, the Bedouins and the uh, new converts to Islam, they began venerating the tree. And they built a masjid at that tree. Even though, I mean, which tree was it? But they built a masjid, mashallah. They built a masjid and it is narrated that, that one of the Tabatabi'un, uh, so this is Tabatabi'un, he saw this masjid in the middle of nowhere because this is outside Mecca. There is no civilization. There is no, you know, uh, people living there. And he sees the people congregating in this masjid. He asked them, what is this masjid? They said, this is the masjid, this is the tree that the Prophet uh, gave the bay'at al-Ridwan. He took the bay'at al-Ridwan. So he went back to uh, Mecca and there was Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib. And Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib is one of the leaders of the Tabi'un. He's one of the most knowledgeable scholars, he's the student of Ibn Abbas and he's a Makki, he's a person residing in Mecca. And Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib said, my father was of those who took Bay'at al-Ridwan. My father was of those who took Bay'at al-Ridwan. And he and his companions could not figure out which tree it was. Are you telling me that your companions, meaning mocking this person, are you telling me your companions know better than the Sahaba? And wallahi, what a powerful statement here. Right? My father was there. And these people that are praying, they have no clue. And you're telling me they know more than my father knew and the, and, and the Sahaba knew. And in the Musanaf Abdul Razak with an authentic Isnad, and this is a very important uh, point, and I have looked this up myself and teach classes about this, so it's a very important issue, uh, theological issue. Umar ibn al Khattab, news reached him that the Bedouins had built a masjid there, or that they were venerating the tree. Uh, some of them were like rubbing their backs on it, you know, for, for, you know, getting some blessings and whatnot. And so he chastised them and he commanded that the tree they were venerating be cut down and chopped. Not that that was the actual tree even, because that was their imagination, right? Nobody knows which tree it was, but that he ordered that it be cut down and uh, chopped. Now, this incident is a whole different tangent and it's a very important tangent, I'll just summarize it very quickly, and that is the whole issue of venerating places, or venerating icons or objects, that some people might believe to be sacred. 
You see, we have here a tension between ignorant or superstitious or emotional practices on the one side and authentic academic knowledge-based Islam on the other. And this tension is nothing new. We still have it to this day. And I can give you a million examples and all of you know of a million examples in your own you know, family and friends and whatnot. There is this tension between the emotional side, I want to do something. The tree here, the process that I'm sat under it, even if he did sit under it, even if he did, what are you going to do? Prostrate down to it or what? You see, this was the fiqh of Umar. This generation, they were simply rubbing their backs and building a masjid. If this is what's happening when Umar is alive, what do you think will happen in a hundred, two hundred, one thousand years? Wallahi ladhi la ilaha illahu. If Umar had not done his job and it left there, it would now be an idol that is worshipped besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In fact, what is an idol other than taking a holy place or a holy person or a holy saint and making them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? And all you need to do is to look at the bulk of you know so many places around the Muslim world in India and in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Egypt, in Algeria, in Tunisia, so many places. And one finds the grave of a righteous person, right? The Mazar, the Dariq, right? And people go there and some people are doing things that are rel relatively okay, making dua to Allah, that's fine, okay. Others, sajda to the grave, Tawaf around the grave, making dua to the grave. Ya Jilani, Ya Madad, Ya Ali Madad, Ya Abdul Qadir. This is subhanAllah unbelievable, right? And where does it all start? This notion that this person is sacred. Now, what is the grave of Abdul Qadir al Jilani compared to the tree that the Prophet sat under? Think about that. Can anybody compare the grave of any righteous person with the very tree that is mentioned in the Quran? Allah mentions it. And the Prophet sat there for at least a solid hour. How long is it going to take? 1400 people individually giving the bay'ah. Even if you say 20-30 seconds. I mean you do the math, right? SubhanAllah, quite a while he's sitting there with his back to the tree under the shade. And then I ask you, if you knew that that tree was right there, which of these two groups would me and you fall under? Allah is easy to criticize. But put yourself in their shoes, right? Which one would you fall under? And this shows us the difference between emotionalism and between academic Islam. Our religion is not based on feelings. Our religion is based upon what Allah and His Messenger have told us to do. And they did not tell us to venerate any land or any site or any icon other than Mecca and Medina and Jerusalem. These are the three holy lands. Now, as for the uh, remnants of the Prophet ﷺ, like, uh, or his, the athar of his wudu or whatnot, this is something he allowed. And we mentioned in Hudaybiyah as well, that when he would do wudu, the Sahaba did this. So we say, if Allah had blessed us to be alive when the Prophet ﷺ was alive, then the remnants of his wudu, yes. But not where he sat under a tree. And the Sahaba understood this distinction, right? Not where he sat under a tree, this was not something that the Sahaba did. In any case, that is an interesting theological point here. And it shows us that this tension between basically mystical Islam, if you like, and between academic Islam, who were the mystical Muslims at the time? These were the ignorant Bedouins, right? They feel they have to do something. And the more academically inclined, which were basically all of the Sahaba, right? All of them, they're like, what are you guys doing? You're going to sit under a tree and rub your back on it? None of the Sahaba did that. 
right? And this shows us as well that if we are going to visit any site of early Islam, we go for historical reasons, not for what is called baraka or tabarruk. We go for historical reasons. Yes, if we knew that that was the truth, we go and we take ibrah, we take a lesson from it. And we remember these ayat of Surah Al-Fatah. We go to the battle of Badr, the location, and we remember this was where Badr took place. But we don't take some sand and think it is holy. Right? We go to Ghari Hira and we simply are awed. And in my humble opinion, by the way, there's no problem going to Ghari Hira. Some of the scholars are ultra strict and I understand that strictness. And they say you should not go to Hira. Why? Because of these types of reasons. And I understand that strictness. But in my opinion, if you go with the right niyyah, you're not going to venerate Hira. You're not going to venerate Badr. You're going so that the, 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 the history of that area seeps into your heart. So that you are overwhelmed at my God, this is where Iqra came down. So you feel a sense of awe. But you realize that the rocks there are not something you're going to touch. You're not, you're not going to take a piece and then bring it back here. SubhanAllah. What is idolatry other than taking a piece of rock somewhere and then putting it in the masjid, putting it here, putting it there? That's not what we do. Right? So, in my opinion, this is a very good example of what happens when emotionalism is left unchecked. And who can accuse Umar ibn al-Khattab of being somebody who doesn't love the prophecies. Because you see the tension we have in our culture especially, if you start talking like this, they will label you. They will label you. Either they'll call you what? Is it Mubghide? What does it call you? Huh? Well, Vahabi. Okay, that's, yeah, that's Vahabi is there. But they give you also the one who hates the prophecies. Astaghfirullah, there's some... Huh? What is it? Yeah, Ghustaq. What is it? Okay, so Ghustaq. I don't even know this word. Ghustaq means what? The one who hates? Insulting. La hawla Anybody who insults the prophecies is not a Muslim. Anybody who insults the Prophet is not a Muslim. But their veneration of the Prophet is something the Prophet himself would have rejected. Right? And so these extreme groups, they have kind of sort of the kernel has been around from the Bedouins. And you can see this tension is not new. It has been there from the very beginning. Anyway, back to uh, Hudaybiyah. So, when the news finally reached the Muslims that Uthman was uh, walking back, was on his way back, so Uthman... Uh, the news, by the way, of the Treaty of Ridwan reached Mecca. So the Quraysh heard that the Muslims have taken a treaty. So we don't know, but most likely they must have kind of panicked and sent Uthman back faster or expedited or whatnot. That, okay, we nothing here. Everything's fine with your companion. They sent him back. So when uh, they sent Uthman back, and the Muslims got the emissary that he is coming, he is coming. So some of them... They said, Uthman, oh how lucky he is, he must have gone inside of Mecca, so he must have done the tawaf as well. At least he got to do that, right? Here we are, you know, stuck here outside waiting for, perhaps, perhaps, we have no idea, perhaps around four or five days had gone since they're waiting at Hudaybiyah. And again, I tried to look up as many riwayat, we don't know how many days this back and forth is taking place, right? Perhaps four or five days, maybe even more. So, they said, how lucky is Uthman, he must have gone and done the tawaf because he was able to enter Mecca protected. But the Prophet ﷺ said, La yaf'al. I don't think he's going to do the tawaf. How can he do the tawaf when we have not done the tawaf? Meaning, the Prophet ﷺ realized Uthman's adab and Uthman's respect would not allow him to do something the other Muslims were not doing. But the other Muslims, they just assumed, they basically said, basically, why would he not? Why wouldn't he do when, when he's been protected and he's been allowed to go? Now, another thing we notice here, subhanAllah, how eager they are to see the Kaaba. How eager they've been deprived from their home, they've been kicked out, and they're missing the tawaf and the umrah so much. And they're feeling 
jealous. Uthman must have gotten there and were out here. Really look at, they wanted to respect the sha'air of Allah, the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How excited are we to go see the Kaaba? And here they are, they're just like, he must have gone, he must have gone. And the Prophet said, no, la I don't think he's going to do that. And when they saw him return, they surrounded him. And one of them kind of sarcastically remarked, have you satisfied yourself now with the Kaaba? Khalas, like you're done, you know, you did everything you wanted to do after having done the tawaf. To which he replied, what an evil thought you had of me. Did you think that I would do tawaf while the Prophet is still here? Wallahi, if I stayed in Mecca for one year, I would not do tawaf until the Prophet did it before me. Subhanallah. And here again we have the defense of the Prophet of Uthman. لا أظنه يفعل. I don't think he's going to do that. That's not the nature of Uthman. For him to do tawaf, when, when we are all here, he wouldn't be the one, you know, being, and this shows us obviously the respect that the Sahaba, and especially Uthman, gave to the Prophet How can I do tawaf when the Prophet is stuck outside? How unfair and unjust and, un, and cruel would that be? That I'm going and getting the luxury when Rasulullah is deprived outside? Wallahi, if they kept me for a year, I wouldn't do tawaf until they let the Prophet do tawaf. And again, this shows us once again, it shows us what the blessings of Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu ta'ala an. And according to Al-Bayhaqi in his Dala'il, in one of the books of, of the Dala'il, he mentions that when the news reached the Quraysh about the Bay'at al-Ridwan, they trembled. They got scared. And what does that show you? A small group of Muslims, right? Un, not unarmed, but not as armed as well as they are tired and whatnot, but they have Iman and they can cause the mighty tribe of the Quraysh to tremble in their houses. They got scared. And this was why they decided we need to negotiate before they do something. This was why they decided we need to have some treaty. And so they sent an official delegation. Uh, and initially they sent somebody by the name of Mikraz ibn Hafs. Mikraz ibn Hafs. And it appears that this was just a quick uh, sending. They hadn't really thought things through in that Mikraz did not really have a plan or an agenda. And when the Prophet ﷺ saw Mikraz, he said to the Sahaba that this Mikraz, Mikraz is a evil man, Rajulu Su, he's a, he's a bad person, and this is not going to be working for us. And when Mikraz approached, he and the process and began negotiating, but there was simply no terms for negotiation. Each uh, Mikraz was giving conditions and whatnot that simply were not acceptable to anybody. And as they were talking, and the negotiation was completely stalled, then from the distance appeared the final delegation. And this was a delegation that would solve basically the problems. And there were three people in that delegation. And the senior person amongst them and the main person was none other than Suhail ibn Amr. Suhail ibn Amr. And when the Prophet saw Suhail, he said, قَدْ جَاءَ Suhail سَهُولَ عَلَيْكُمْ أَمْرُكُمْ Suhail has come. And Suhail comes from the verb Sahula. And Sahula means to make things easy. So Suhail has come, Allah has made things easy for you now. Through Suhail, Sahl will be reached. And Sahl means ease and opening. And this leads us to another theological point, and that is the issue of good omens. Good omens. Positive omens. And this one phrase shows us 
what does it mean to have a good omen? Our Prophet ﷺ said that there's no such thing as superstitions, as uh, as bad omens. All of these uh, uh, bad omens, like in our in our world, bad omens are like Friday the 13th, or a black cat, or uh, breaking glass, or an upside down horseshoe, or all of these things, you know. And then good omens are four leaf clover. All of these things that our culture is familiar with, and of course every culture has its these types of things. So the Prophet said, all of these things don't exist. They don't even exist. And in one hadith, he said, that believing in omens is a type of shirk. If you believe a black cat is going to harm you, if it crosses your path, you have some serious theological issues, really, you know. So uh, the Prophet said, This is all shirk, there's nothing like this. Then he said, But I like positive optimism, I like good omens. So he, they asked him, what do you mean by al-fa'al? Al-fa'al is the Arabic term. What do you mean by al-fa'al? He says, a good word or a good phrase that somebody hears. This is the hadith is in Bukhari. Now, what does this mean? So let's give an example that is easier or, or, or clearer to understand. A good omen is to read in, there's two conditions. Number one, a positive sign. A positive message. Number two, that is linked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If these two conditions are met, then a good omen is recommended. And it is something that is a part of our religion. And a good omen is nothing other than being optimistic in Allah. That's really what it is. A good omen is being optimistic in Allah. And an example of a good omen that perhaps our culture uh, will understand and I can assure you this example has never, never been found in any book of fiqh because this is a culturally relevant example. If one of us is making dua on a, a cloudy day and we're making dua, we're making dua, we're making dua. Then we open our eyes and we look out the window and we see a beautiful rainbow. If we say, this is a sign from Allah that I should cheer up. And that my dua will be answered. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's good. The Prophet said, I like al-fa'al. يُعْجِبُنِ fa'al. Why is there nothing wrong with that? Because shouldn't we already be thinking that Allah will give us what we want? Optimism in Iman. Correct? So anything that boosts that optimism, anything, is something that is ja'iz. It is mustahab in fact. You should always be optimistic. Right? So anything that you read as a sign, as a positive sign, right? Suppose it was cloudy, you, 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 know, you make dua and the sun comes. So the sun is a type of brightness. So your heart always feels you know, happier when you see the sun after a cloudy day. It's like your heart goes up. If you say, oh, this is a sign that my problems will diminish like the clouds. And the help of Allah like the sun will come in upon me. No problem. It's okay. In fact, it's good. يُعْجِبُنِي الْفَعْلِ And one of the examples of the seerah of the Prophet is exactly here. Suhail comes from the root that means to make things easy. And when Suhail came, the Prophet said, Suhail has come, Allah has sahula, Allah has made things easy for you. So he derived a positive omen that khalas, this is good news now. That Suhail is coming and our matters will be made easy for us. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. 
That when Suhail came, finally the impasse was broken, right? The multi-days keep on going, finally it is uh, broken. And there are so many other things that are uh, said. Uh, one of the examples that one of the Sahaba gave. So there's a name in Arabic called Wajid. And Wajid means Wajada, the one who finds. So someone, one of the Sahaba said, imagine you lost uh, or you lose something and you're trying to find it. Then somebody calls out to his friend, Ya Wajid, Ya Wajid. And you hear that and... You take this as a good sign, I will be the wajid. Do you, does that make sense to you? I will find what I want to find. Because wajid linguistically means the one who finds. And somebody's calling his friend who's called wajid, oh, hey wajid, come here. And then the man who's trying to find something, a lost item, he says, this is a sign from Allah, I'm going to be the wajid now, I will find my thing. This is an example, again, in our culture, I give you some other examples. My point being, whatever you read in a positive sign, that Allah is sending a positive sign to me, that inshallah my problems will be solved, inshallah my dua will be answered, inshallah my sickness will be cured, whatever positive sign, two conditions. Number one is positive, there is no such thing as negative. So if you're making dua, and then there's a thunder, don't think that this is a sign that Allah has rejected my dua. Doesn't work that way, okay? There's no opposite, okay? And then of course the second sign or the second condition, you must link it to Allah. And this is one of the biggest problems of all of our bad luck things that we have. It's not even linked to Allah Azawajal. Bad luck from a cat crossing your path? Come on. I mean, how foolish is this, right? Where is that coming from? So, only positive and then linked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In any case, there's a lot of fiqh and theology to be right from Hudaybiyah, so I have to go into these tangents. Now back to Hudaybiyah. Where were we? Okay, so Suhail comes. Before we even move on, who is Suhail? And what is the story of Suhail? So Suhail, well, firstly, he is the highest level delegate sent in Hudaybiyah. Everybody else is relatively low level. And Suhail is the highest level that has been sent. And he is one of those who is a member of the Nadi. Basically he's an MP, he's a member of the parliament. You know the Quraysh, they had their, their Nadi, they had their little you know, uh, group of leaders and whatnot. Suhail is a member of that little clique, that little group. So clearly this is a politician coming now. Not one of these emissaries, not some messenger. This is a man who has been delegated with authority. Suhail ibn Amr. And uh, Suhail ibn Amr is one of the high profile members of the Quraysh. And remember that at the Battle of Badr, when Suhail was a prisoner of war and he was brought into the house of the Prophet, remember some prisoners were even brought to the house of the Prophet. And I commented, where in the history of humanity has the leader ever housed a prisoner of war in his own house? The one and only time in the history of the world is the Prophet, the elite members of the, of the Quraysh, he housed them in his own house. And number one amongst them was Suhail ibn Amr, right? And remember when one of the wives of the Prophet she went back, she came rushing back home. This was before hijab had been revealed, so there is no hijab at the time. She comes rushing back and she sees Suhail ibn Amr, his hands tied to his neck, and that's how they tied prisoners of war. And she kind of slipped, right? And what did she say who remembers? Oh, you who takes notes. <laughs> you should have killed yourself. It would have been more befitting. Like, are, are, why, are you, why are you embarrassing us by being a prisoner of war? It would have been better for you to be dead than I see you like this. In other words, like seeing somebody as noble as Suhail in the days of Jahiliyyah, now a prisoner of war with his hands tied, she kind of slipped. And she said, 
you're humiliating us by being a POW, right? You see the point here, right? And the Prophet turned at her and said, are you taking sides against Allah and His Messenger? Then she snapped out of it and she said, Ya Rasulullah, I didn't, I didn't understand. It's a slip sometimes like, you know, the, but the point being, the image of Suhail as a POW, right? And her shock shows us what? The status of Suhail. That's what I'm trying to get across to you, right? The status of Suhail as being somebody that was greatly respected amongst the Quraysh. In fact, uh, he was called Khatib al-Quraysh. Khatib al-Quraysh because he was the most uh, powerful orator. And he was uh, the most eloquent in their nadi. That he was, when it comes to debate, when it comes to negotiation, he was the man. That's why he's being chosen here. Right? That's why he's being chosen here. He knows what to say and how to say it. And that is why, if you remember, we go back to the Battle of Badr, Umar, when he saw Suhail captured, he said, Ya Rasulullah, let me cut his tongue off so that he doesn't speak against us again. So he has a long history of saying some very powerful things, right? And what did the Prophet say? Who remembers? He said, uh, the Prophet said that uh, this same person will defend... Uh, he did say that, but he said something else as well. He said... I am a prophet and we have not been commanded to mutilate people. It's not our sharia to mutilate. We don't cut people's tongues off. That's not our sharia, right? So uh, he forbade him to do that. Then he turned to Umar and he said, and perhaps one day he will say something that will please you. This is a type of prediction here. Right now you're taking sides. The time will come he might flip and say something that will please you. And... Uh, this shows us that Suhail, and this is an amazing thing, we mentioned this last week, and this is a constant theme of the whole seerah that I'm teaching you, because the fact of the matter is we do have quite a lot of Muslims, they have this black and white view that anybody who's uh, a, a kafir has got to be evil to the core. And this is simply false from the seerah and from a human psychological point of view. Every one of us interacts with non-Muslims. They're honest, they're upright, they're generous, they're kind. They would, some of them would defend uh, our rights and their rights, even if they'd meant at a great expense. Some of them would even die fighting for a noble cause. And this is a reality you cannot deny anybody who lives amongst non-Muslims. Only those who have no clue, they can spout this radical black and white worldview. Here we have Suhail, that no doubt he is a kafir at this point in time. Yet deep down inside him, there is a kernel of good. And Suhail was an enemy of Allah and his messenger at this point in time. In fact, he participated in Badr and in Uhud and in Khandaq. Yani all of the major battles. And perhaps the only person more senior to him was Abu Sufyan in terms of actual uh, nobility. Yet deep down inside, there was some good in him. And the Prophet recognized this. Umar did not. Umar did not recognize this. The Prophet recognized that, look, despite all of his bad. And by the way, so imagine what must he have said, which the books of Sira don't record, that got Umar so angry. His eloquent speeches against Islam. That God Umar so angry, let me just cut his tongue off. All of this has not been recorded. But the Prophet saw in him some good. In Allah says in the Quran, if Allah sees some good in your hearts. And so 
What happened with Suhail? What was this prediction? Well, Suhail converted at the conquest. He was of those who converted at the end. And so there is no doubt that overall, the status of Suhail is not the status of Abu Bakr and Umar. It's not the status of the early converts. It's not the status of the Muhajirun. Suhail is not a Muhajir. Suhail and his group, they converted the very last batch. And Allah says in the Quran, not equal are those who converted before the conquest versus those who converted after the conquest. And Suhail converted after the conquest, right? Yet, the books of Sirah mention and the books of, of history mention that out of all of the converts who converted after the conquest, the most worship-minded was Suhail. The most salah, the most fasting, the most zakah was Suhail. And when the Prophet ﷺ died, Suhail was still in, in Mecca, and the people of Mecca, by and large, were all converts at the conquest of Mecca. Remember, the Muhajirun had to go back to Medina, right? We'll, we'll get there, but we already know this. None of the Muhajirs was allowed to live in Mecca. You already know this. They had to go back to Medina. So who's living in Mecca? It's all the people who converted a year and a half ago. You have the Abu Sufyans, you have the Suhails, you have all of these people, right? And so, many of them flirted with the idea of leaving. Khalas, the process in them is dead, let's go back to our old ways. So much so that the Sahabi, the governor, that the process appointed to be the, 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 the ruler of Mecca, he feared for his life. And he went into hiding because commotions began. And mobs began gathering and then the news of the process of death was a traumatic time. And the, this, this governor, he felt that they're going to come and kill me. So he went into hiding. Who's the one who calmed them down? Suhail ibn Amr. Suhail ibn Amr stood in front of the Kaaba. And he gave them a fiery lecture. Khatib al-Quraysh. And he warned them and admonished them. And he said to them of the sentence that, that has been recorded, O people of Mecca, look at how eloquent this phrase is. Do not be the last group to convert and the first group to renegade and apostatize. How beautiful is this, right? You already have the dishonor of being the last group to convert. Now you want to add to this on your resume, the first group to leave Islam. And he played a major role in bringing them back to their senses. And he was the one who brought the governor out of his hiding and then basically uh, reinstated him. And it is also mentioned that uh, when they visited uh, Umar in the Khilafah of Umar, that Suhail and Abu Sufyan and others, they visited Umar in Medina. And when they went to the house of Umar, they found a line there. Uh, you know, people are going to go see the Khalifa, right? And in that line are Bilal and uh, 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 Suhaib al-Rumi and Ibn Mas'ud and all of these that they consider to be low and when the secretary comes out and he sees all the people there so he calls number one in line is Bilal ibn Abi Rabah and then he calls the other Badriyun one after the other and Abu Sufyan says to Suhail I have never seen a day like this before we are here and we are, I mean, you have to realize who were these people, right? This is, if Quraysh had kings, these are the kings of Quraysh. These are the MPs of Quraysh, right? And who is Bilal and who, is, who are these other people? So Abu Sufyan says, 
I have never seen, and they're all now Muslim, but still, you know, it takes a while to, 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 to get to that stage. So Abu Sufyan says that, I have never seen a day like this. We are here. And these abid, these slaves, and these, you know, whoever they were, they have been given precedence over us. Now look at what Suhail says. And you see the iman of Suhail. Subhanallah, where was he? Even, even in the incident of Hudaybiyyah, how harsh he was, we will see. How harsh he was. But deep down inside, there was some good. And when eventually the Prophet and he managed to get to that good by the help of Allah, that good overwhelmed him. What did he say to Abu Sufyan? He said, I can see the anger in your faces. And there was a group from Mecca there. I can see the anger in your faces. But if you wish to be angry, then be angry at yourselves. For they, Bilal and others, were called to Islam, and we too were called to Islam. Same time. They raced forward, and we lagged behind. And the blessings that they obtained in racing forward, listen to this, are far more than the honor of them entering the door of Umar before us now. You understand this point, right? In the eyes of Allah, the blessings they have by having accepted Islam are much more than now they're entering the door of Umar and then we're still waiting in line. Be jealous at that good rather than the good of entering the door of Umar. Imagine now, Suhail, we really see Iman from the heart of Suhail now coming, right? And then he told them that uh, if you cannot catch up with them, the least you can do is to exert yourself in jihad fi sabidillah so that at least we can try to come close. And uh, saying this, eventually he basically signed up to join the army uh, that was fighting the Romans in Syria. And he eventually died a shaheed uh, fighting in uh, Syria. And uh, again, that's an amazing story of Suhail ibn Amr. Who was he? Where was he? And now, what did he become? So out of the converts of the conquest of Mecca, Suhail is considered to be the most or of the most towards the most righteous and the most zahid amongst them. Now, he might have become a great companion later on, but right now he's still a bitter, bitter enemy. And the Quraysh have sent him to basically negotiate uh, a treaty uh, with the Prophet ﷺ, and they have very clearly told him, make sure whatever you agree to, that he does not enter Mecca this year. And that was the big condition. The Quraysh were willing to compromise a lot of things. But this one condition, no, for let not the Arabs say that he had the better hand over us. And what makes the matter even more uh, personal for Suhail was that uh, Suhail had two sons, and the both of them had given him trouble with Islam. And the both of them had caused so much uh, dishonor to his family name. As for the older son, and his name was Abdullah. Abdullah has a very interesting story that uh, we didn't mention in the Battle of Badr. Now I reiterate, I've said this many times, and no doubt, inshallah ta'ala, this seerah that I'm teaching you is, inshallah, uh, perhaps the most comprehensive in the English language, inshallah ta'ala. But at the same time, it's not everything. Because really that's a whole different level. And I would call it an intermediate level seerah. Advanced level means you go over every chain and which one is authentic and who said where. And that's really not suitable even in the English language in my opinion. So not every story has been mentioned. And this is a story that I actually left it out in the Battle of Badr. And I regret having left it out because it is now relevant here. So I'll just quickly mention it here. And that is a story of Abdullah ibn Suhaid ibn Amr. Uh, and very briefly, it's a very interesting story. 
that Abdullah ibn Suhail, uh, he was a secret convert, and there was some tensions between him and his father, but he didn't want to go public with his Islam. And he realized that my father being who he is, this is going to cause big problems for me. And so uh, he basically quelled it. He was trying to convert publicly, but his father clearly would not allow this, so he kept his Islam secret. So uh, when the Battle of Badr happens, he sees an opportunity. What opportunity? To finally get to Medina. How? in the very army that is meant to fight Medina. Right? So, Abdullah volunteers. Right? And he walks literally with them under their noses as a part of the army. And when they camp for the very first time and they can see each other, Abdullah basically takes his horse and sneaks away and he joins the ranks of the Muslims and he fights on the side of the Muslims at Badr against the side of the Quraysh. Now can you imagine the shame that Suhail had to deal with back in Mecca? Right? Can you imagine the criticisms? How embarrassed Suhail would have been in front of his, you know. Now he's the prisoner of war and his son is now watching him as a prisoner of war in Badr. Right? Suhail is a prisoner. His son is on the side of the Muslims now. And this caused Suhail so much anguish, pain. This is his eldest, this is the firstborn, all the hopes, all the dreams. Guess what? When Suhail runs over to Medina, Suhail's younger brother starts talking of conversion. And clearly he is a convert. And Suhail's younger, uh, sorry, not Suhail, Abdullah's younger brother, sorry. Abdullah, Suhail, Suhail has two sons, Abdullah and then Abu Jandal. And Abu Jandal is the one we're going to talk about right now, right? Abdullah ibn Suhail and then his younger brother Abu Jandal. When Abdullah flees to Medina, Abu Jandal clearly expresses irritation that he can't do the same. He wants to, I know, how come he wants to go? He got to go, right? You know how siblings are all the time, right? He got to go, I need to go as well now. And it was clear to Suhail that Abu Jandal is a Muslim. Because you see the same thing had happened with Abdullah, that Abdullah is trying to convince his father to convert and his father is not converting and so Abdullah basically says, okay, okay, you know, let's not convert. But it's clear that he is a convert now. You understand here, right? That there's the tension. And so Abu Jandal's Islam is now certain. So Suhail locks up Abu Jandal and tells the servants and slaves to torture him, throw him into the dungeon, deprive him of food and water, and he is chained since the battle of Badr up until now, the incident of Hudaybiyah, that's four and a half solid years. The father has kept his own son in a dungeon. Torturing him, telling him to worship the idols, basically the same, you know, the same thing that's happening, right? And he is refusing to let Abu Jandal go to Medina. Uh, he says, I've lost one son, I'm not going to lose both of them. Until you convert, then you will be free. And of course, you know, they're not going to lie and say, okay, I'm going to worship the idol. You know, they're not going to do that. These are, they have, the imam, they're not going to do that. So, Abu Jandal has been locked up. And of course, Abu Jandal's story will be the one that we are talking about here. Um, SubhanAllah, we're going much slower than I was expecting, but there's so much to mention. Let's just go for another 5-10 minutes and then let's call it a break. Uh, so Suhail then, uh, Suhail then comes as the, as the official delegate and the Prophet and Suhail, they agree to write a treaty. And this is the famous story, all of us are familiar with it, the standard story. And I will just narrate it to you for those who are hearing it for the first time. That's the Prophet uh, called for a scribe and Ali ibn Abi Talib was the one who was the scribe there.
And so Ali ibn Abi Talib began writing down and the Prophet began dictating. Because Suhail has now come to negotiate a treaty, he's the one who says, come, let us write the sulah between us. Let us write the compromise, the treaty between us. So the Prophet began dictating. And this shows us the assertiveness of the Prophet that he's not a meek leader. He's not somebody who's going to, no, okay, let's negotiate. This is what I want. So every time he's saying something first, right? And this shows us as well. Suhail might have been Khatib of the Quraysh, but the Prophet is far more powerful and eloquent than him, obviously, right? He cuts off Suhail. He goes, okay, let us write it. Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. So the Prophet's forwardness is being shown here. As the leader, he's now going to negotiate, right? Bismillahir Rahman Rahim. And Suhail, as we know, he says, as for this phrase, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, I have never heard of it before. And I don't know who is this Ar Rahman. Let us write it the way we are accustomed to writing Bismik Allahum. Now, again, this is a matter of ego, isn't it? Right? What would Suhail lose if there were Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim? It's just the preliminary, the letterhead. What would Suhail lose? It's a matter of ego and pride. I want to show you who's the boss. I'm not going to compromise anything. Right? And remember what our Prophet had said. And he said this publicly. And he said it publicly so that the Muslims understand what's at stake. He said that by Allah, no condition will the Quraysh ask of me. And that condition respects the signs of Allah, except that I will give them that condition. Basically, as long as bloodshed is avoided and as long as the sacred, because bloodshed would be haram, meaning this is the haram. And they're not supposed to fight in the haram. In a haram, it's a major sin. So as long as they avoid any haram and, uh, haram and bloodshed is avoided, I will give them any condition they want. As long as Sha'ir al-Islam and Sha'ir al-Allah are, uh, are honored. So the Prophet said, very well, write it, Bismik Allahum. Now Ali had not yet written it down. So he says, Bismik Allahum. So he says, Bismik Allahum. Then the Prophet again took charge. And once again, we notice he's the one showing who's the boss. And the Prophet said, this is what Muhammad, Rasulullah has agreed to with Suhail ibn Amr. Okay, so Ali is writing, this is what هذا ما صالحه Muhammad Rasulullah. So this is what Muhammad, and he writes the word Rasul. As we know, this is the famous story. He writes the word Rasulullah. And by the time Suhail hears this, he says, as for you being Rasulullah, and this is very true from his perspective, Wallahi, if we believed you to be Rasulullah, Neither would we prevent you from the Kaaba, nor would we have fought you, Badr, Uhud, Ahzab, right? Rather, write it the way your family, your, your, your people knew you, Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Now again, this is major ego, right? Who cares what the title is if you really want a treaty? But this is a matter of his ego. So Hayl wants to, the Prophet and the Muslims to know, we're not going to let you get away with anything. And... The Prophet said, Wallahi inni la Rasulullah. Wallahi, I am Rasulullah, even if you deny this. Doesn't matter, doesn't change the reality. So write down Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And here is where one of the reports says, and this is uh, definitely, yani, there's nothing strange about this, uh, even though it's not in some books, but it is in other books that Ali ibn Abi Talib basically said, Ya Rasulullah, I'm not going to delete Rasulullah. 
I'm not going to delete Rasulullah. Yani his own anger now got the better of him. That who does this man think he is that I'm going to delete or I'm going to scratch out Rasulullah uh, uh, fr from this document. And so it is said, and there's again nothing wrong with, uh, with this version as well, that the Prophet basically uh, took it and scrapped it out. Now in those days you had leather. Uh, to write in and there is no whiteout. How are you going to take something out? You take a knife or you take something, you just basically rub it off and then it's not going to be there anymore. And so it is said that with his own hand, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he basically scribbled it out and this shows us again the humility of the Prophet Sallallahu It shows us the Iman of Ali radiallahu anhu that he said and amazingly by disobeying the Prophet he is actually honoring him. Think about it, right? In this one case, by saying, I can't do this. I just can't. He's actually honoring the Prophet right? And the Prophet didn't persist. Out of, he understands Ali's dilemma here, right? He didn't persist. I'm commanding you, who are you? No. So he takes it himself and he simply rubs it off and then the uh, document resumes again and the Prophet said, uh, so again he takes charge, right? That the Quraysh will let the Muslims do Umrah. Notice again, he's always, yani subhanAllah, what do you expect from Rasulullah Sallallahu He is no coward. He is no, he's not going to be quiet at the negotiation table. Every time he's the one forward. But Suhail, he's representing Quraysh. And so he says, as for this year, fala, then no. We cannot do this. Rather, that will be for next year. So khalas, that is it now. There is no compromise. That this year, you are not going to be able to do the Umrah. Rather, you will come next year. And then, Suhail continued. So now the Prophet basically, that was the main condition he wanted, to do Umrah, right? He didn't want anything else. He has no other condition. So Suhail basically improvised. And he said, yes, you'll do Umrah, but that will be the next year on our terms. Now, Suhail adds his conditions. And if the Prophet wanted to do Umrah the next year, well then you're going to have to listen to my conditions now. So what was his condition? That not a single man from us renegades or defects over to you, even if he be on your religion, except that you will hand him back to us. You see, Suhail especially has been harmed. His son is on the other rank. And his other son wants to go there. So Suhail wants this condition for personal reasons. And he also wants it because this has really traumatized the Quraysh. They have lost a lot of people in this manner, right? And the Muslims said, Subhanallah, what an unfair condition. How can we return any one of the Muslims back to you while he has come to us and chosen us? And a commotion began. How can we give this condition? And Ali did not write it because of this commotion going on. The Muslims honor their pride has been hurt and probably a few minutes are dragging on. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wills one of the most interesting and clearly melodramatic episodes of this year. There is no denying that this is the will of Allah that right at this point in time, something happens that is simply so melodramatic and so difficult to stomach. This was a test for all of the Muslims and that is Suhail's son Abu Jandal. Clearly now by the way, let's put a footnote here. Abu Jandal is trapped in a dungeon. But in the last four years, he's figured out a way to get out. But even if he gets out, where is he going to go? 
He doesn't have a horse. He doesn't have a camel. How is he going to get his way to Medina? Okay, you know when you're trapped in such a scenario, you might figure out a way to get out. But then once you get out, he's, he's going to have a chain around him. You know, all of the people of Mecca know him. What's he going to do? So he might as well just stay there. At least he's being fed and given some food and some water. He's going to die out in the desert. He has no way of getting to Medina. And realize, I mean, in those days, it's not just a matter of escaping from the dungeon. How are you going to get from Mecca to Medina? He has no money. He has no ride. Uh, the people of Mecca all know him as being the son of Suhail. What chance does he have? So he stays in status quo. Now he's heard that for the last three or four days the Muslims are camped outside. He doesn't know his father has gone to negotiate. However it is, he finally manages to basically get out of that dungeon. He still has his chains. But he gets out of that dungeon and he flees hoping finally to be protected by the Muslims. And while they're disgusting and dis discussing and clearly as I said, the will of Allah to demonstrate this is something so clear here. That they hear the dangling, or the, ch the, the, the chinging of the chains here, the clanging of the chains. And in the distance, they find Abu Jandal screaming out, Ya al-Muslimin, O Muslims, finally, yes, I found you guys, alhamdulillah. He doesn't know his own father is sitting there, right? He doesn't know what is being discussed. He does not know that the very condition that is being discussed deals with Suhail and his own two sons, right? And Suhail turns to the Prophet and he says, this is the first one that this condition is going to be applied on. And with that very melodramatic Shahrazad ending, we will have to pause and come back, inshaAllah ta'ala, uh, next Wednesday.